When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm sitting with uh, Professor Mario Bagos, uh, who from Australia, Sydney, Australia. He's in Sydney, I'm in Chicago. And we're uh, here to talk about his book, his new book, uh, called uh, From the Ancient Near East to Christian Byzantium, Kings, Symbols, and Cities, which uh, I, I found this book uh, surreptitiously and, and I was struck by its title, but then I looked into the table of content and uh, I was uh, really overwhelmed, I have to say, uh, as I read it, um, how how rich uh, and how uh, uh, dense it is, right? And it's, it's a very unique type of scholarship uh, that you almost don't encounter anymore, uh, this type of uh, encyclopedic knowledge brought you know together in uh, one single volume because uh i guess people don't take this time to do this anymore right there were, were much people have to produce <laughs> anyway uh, uh, uh mario uh, professor mario bagos teaches at the university of notre dame in sydney australia and he graduated from university of sydney uh, with a degree in religious studies, uh, and he's been a teacher in various uh, contexts in Australia, but he's a scholar of patristics. So um, I'd like to first ask him maybe to briefly summarize his journey from uh, how he arrived at writing this book. Uh, how did you decide to choose this subject and why you spent so much time writing it? Adrian, thank you for your your gracious uh, introduction and kind words, and for for inviting me to speak to you about my book. Um, I'll just do the self promotion here and lift it up from the ancient Near East to Christian Byzantium, which is an outcome of the doctoral research that I undertook from 2012 to 2015 at um, in the discipline and department of studies in religion at the University of Sydney, as you mentioned. It's quite the journey, to be honest with you. And you referred to um, the sort of encyclopedic approach that I took. Uh, that was uh, necessitated by circumstances and by my own restlessness, I have to say, because uh, I was a graduate, as an undergraduate, of um, the Greek Orthodox Theological College here that's accredited by the Sydney College of Divinity, St. Andrews. And um, I graduated in about uh, 2010 with a... Uh, thesis on Eusebius of Caesarea and his in perspectives on 
the Emperor Constantine. And I was being prepared to take over the history units at the college. And so I was looking for supervision in the area of church history, and um, it made um, a lot of sense to me to uh, look at um, Constantine and Constantinople, in particular the city of Constantinople, because I was always fascinated by its art and architecture. So I started to look around, and what I realized is that uh, most of the scholarship, and there's a lot of very good scholarship on Constantinople and and on Byzantium, especially these days, uh, it nevertheless tends to be um, utilitarian in focus. So it's an analysis, uh, more or less, of the uh, bricks and mortar, let's say, of the church buildings and how the art was produced, a radical contextualization of the methods and, and various other things. But not many studies at the time, well, there have been a few recent studies that have uh, changed this apart from my book, but not many studies at the time had to do with the inherent symbolism of Byzantine churches and art. And so I wanted to, let's say, undertake an interdisciplinary approach that integrated insights from Byzantine studies undertaken very historiographically and archaeologically and everything else, and religious symbolism, which is a bit more existentially significant, especially from a Christian point of view. Now, I lack the terminology uh, to undertake this interdisciplinary approach. And a few years earlier, I had been introduced to the writings of um, the great Romanian historian of religions, uh, Mirceliade, whose photo I see behind you, you pointed it out earlier. Uh, and so uh, it was... Uh, Father Doro Kostaki, who introduced me uh, to his work. And I read The Sacred and the Profane, uh, his very famous monograph. Um, the other one on cosmos and history, the myth of the eternal return. And I encountered in those books conceptual categories that I could uh, employ as uh, heuristic devices to understand or make sense of the symbolism in Constantinople, the symbolism of its churches and monuments and everything else. Those were namely Imago Mundi, image of the world, and Axis Mundi, or Axis Mundi in the plural, centers of the world, where Eliade tried to account for the intersection of the various levels of the cosmos in the perception of the ancient inhabitants of cities and civilizations, how they viewed their world, their Weltanschauung, their worldview, usually comprised of three tiers, heaven, earth, and the underworld, how these were recapitulated or summed up in sacred monuments that manifested what he called the hierophany, the manifestation of the sacred. And you're familiar with all of this because of uh, your love for Eliade. Okay, that helped. And it helped me to get into the, um, the discipline of uh, studies in religion because obviously uh, Eliade, for better or worse, I think for better, other people are negotiating and trying to, let's say, take apart his legacy and influence in Byzantine uh, in studies and religion these days, but he left an indelible mark on the discipline. So I went over to the uh, Sydney University uh, Religious Studies Department and under Professor Carol Kuzak, I began my research there. Uh, but what I realized is that um, in order to make sense of how Constantine founded Constantinople as a recapitulation or summary of the incipient or emerging Christian vision of the world, 
and how that was built upon by subsequent emperors, according to the early Byzantine historiographical sources, and especially the material on Byzantine uh, churches and monuments coming from about the 9th and 10th centuries, the uh, Patria Constantinopoleos and the Parastasis Domichroniche, in order to make sense of how Constantine uh, and his successors built Constantinople as an imago et axis mundi on its own, but also how the city contained within itself many different imagines et axis mundi, images and centers of the world, pillars, churches, palaces. I had to go back to previous civilizations because while there is something distinct in the Christian and what would become the emphatically orthodox Christian approach towards a city and civilization um, within Constantinople itself, nevertheless, nothing happens in a vacuum. And so you see a lot of influences coming out of ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, influencing and impacting the built environment of Constantinople for its 1,000-year duration as the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, what we call the Byzantine Empire, but especially in those early centuries. Uh, for example, the Hippodrome, the main circus in the city, contains obelisks. And Theodosius I famously uh, moved the, the obelisk of Tutmosis III, 4,000-year-old obelisk from Egypt, from Karnak, into the center of his Hippodrome, in this way imitating what emperors ancient pagan Roman emperors had done within the city of Rome itself, in the Circus Maximus and various other places. So there's a continuity in practice and behavior. But something also changes in relation to the fact that whilst these pagan monuments, emphatically pagan monuments, are being incorporated into the city, I mentioned the obelisk which intersects heaven and earth as a needle-like petrification of a sun ray which intersects heaven because it points up and the earth below, you also have... Um, uh, symbolic items that were very important to the ancient Romans and Greeks, like the Palladion, the uh, the image of Pallas Athena, which had purportedly fallen from the sky. It was a meteoric item that uh, the city of Troy was built upon and was later very important for the destiny of the city of Rome. According to legend, uh, it was moved to Rome um, by Diomedes and uh, and Odysseus and, and so on and so forth. They, they began a process where it ended up in Rome. Um, all of these uh, stabilizing uh, items found their way into Constantinople. According to the sources, Constantine found the Palladion and placed it in the center of his forum, in the, in the center of the city of Constantinople. So I was trying to account for the similarities and differences. Uh, and uh, that's why we end up with, uh, in, in a book that's ostensibly on Byzantium, Christian Byzantium, I call it, because I really try to account for differences. You have chapters on ancient Mesopotamia, beginning with the emergence of the first cities in history, and how they imaged and intersected heaven, earth, and the underworld, through to Egypt, Greece, Rome. I account for the changes that take place with the monotheistic religions and, and cultures of uh, Judaism in Israel and Christianity, and then we move through Christianity and Rome to Constantinople itself. Yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, if you don't mind, could we just spend a bit each of the chapters and just maybe provide brief summaries of each of the chapters so that maybe listeners get the idea of the continuities and discontinuities, and then we will talk more about the uh, 
last two chapters, I think, where you dwell more on uh, on Byzantium, but uh, in this uh, tracing that you do or with the the linear history is in, is interesting. Um, so so the first chapter right is on uh, Mesopotamia, right on on the emergence of uh, the city, right. So uh, what is uh, and and before I, I mean I should ask a methodological question because before we do the summary uh, and and in a way so you you adopt Eliade's methodology where you somehow along with him assume that these there is a continuity of symbols right uh, in a way a trans historical continuity right and that's one of the issues people take umbrage with in Eliade, this trans-historicism, which presupposes, which is based on this metaphysical view, right, that there is this, uh, the symbols are are somehow um, first disembodied, but then embodied and, and, and are encountered in different cultures, and there is a continuity, right, that there is the same axis wundi, uh, um, symbol in Mesopotamia, in ancient Egypt, and finally in Byzantium, right? Um, can you talk a bit about this assumption, right? Is that, and why you don't see it as problematic, especially in our debates, to the, in the debates today, where uh, this approach, this uh, ahistorical approach is, is in a way very much criticized, and, and, and we to another extreme of a hyper historization, right? Where we, which which somehow almost bugs us, bugs us down in in very you know narrow avenues that don't allow this uh, you know global uh, view from above, uh, which is necessary in order to make these comparisons. Thank you. That's a very important observations. Uh in your reflection there and i'll try to um i'll try to take them uh, point by point insofar as i can recall them so uh first of all i think part of the reason why we don't take this long durée if you like a, a phrase coined by the historians of mentalities the analysis historians jacques legoff and georges duby um approach the long duration approach towards um history these days um is because of the influence of positivism on the disciplines of historiography and the humanities in in general, um, which is to say that uh, positivism is um, defined by an emphasis on empirical observation of data uh, that can be um, verified and subsequently analyzed in relation to, to the facts. Um, this is very important in the sciences. In the humanities, it's a little bit trickier because there's the role of the interpreter who arranges and organizes those facts. So we've tried to elide or to remove as much as we can in the past hundred years or so the role of the subject, the interpreter in the analysis of these facts in order to come up with a more objective approach to the material. This is in the discipline of historiography, right? Um, Part of what has emerged from that is an over-specialization in specific areas. So you gather more and more and more data, more text, more documents, more resources. And uh, in the process, you can't see the forest through all the trees. I'm not saying that positivism is bad. 
I'm just saying it's not the only way of doing things. There are general trends that unfold over long periods of time. And whilst they change from minute to minute to hour to hour to second to second, nevertheless, they are observable. Why? Because they are all the results of our common humanity, which is something that Eliade had recourse to in relation to Jungian archetypes. You know, the fact that um, uh, because we all share a common humanity, we observe um, the objects of our experience in a very similar way. And uh, from our subconscious emerges a particular approach towards the objects of our experience that can be diachronically and cross-culturally compared. That's uh, the reason why light is usually a good thing associated with the divinity or holiness in across civilizations and darkness evil, you know, uh, because we all experience common dangers in the dark that we try to avoid, but in the light things are illuminated. It's very basic stuff. My approach has not been divorced from positivism. I employ sources throughout the book, as you yourself have seen. I refer to primary sources that testify to the mentality of the inhabitants of these various civilizations. And I, let's say, impose on that Eliade's heuristic, the conceptual categories we, we mentioned, Imago Mundi, Axis Mundi, etc. Um, of course, these phrases, these concepts are not mentioned in those texts. But the content of those texts is amenable to those concepts. So, you know, if if you're reading an uh, an ancient Egyptian uh, text that talks about the cosmogony, and this is common amongst the ancient civilizations, they speak about the emergence of order out of chaos and the city, uh, their place of habitation, is a representation or a a microcosm which staves off chaos and it sums up within itself it recapitulates within itself the story of the origins of the universe that's what we see in the early mesopotamian uh, ziggurats at least from an architectonic point of view they resemble the cosmic mountain that emerges out of chaos um, uh, the the earliest uh, city uh, that we know of uh, at least from an archaeological point of view, but later testified several centuries later in the documentary evidence, Eridu, right, uh, is a cosmic mountain, you know, a step pyramid, like a landing pad for, for the gods to come to earth, but it also represents order out of the cha chaotic, untamable natural world that's around it. Later on, things are clearer in ancient Egypt because what they're doing with ancient Egyptian temples is they are representing their cosmogony, the birth of the cosmos, according to their uh, particular uh, mentality, from the perspective of each of the main cities. So if you look at a city like Heliopolis, the city of the sun, it is the god Ra who comes out of this, let's say, chaotic expanse of water, the Nun, the Egyptians called it, and he emerges on a symbol of order coming out of chaos, which is the ben-ben stone, the hill, and then he begins to shape the universe, giving order to the chaos um, from this vantage point, from the hill. Now, the Egyptians were inferring this from the yearly cycle of the inundation and recession of the Nile River. When the Nile River was inundated, six months of the year, everything would be destroyed. It was just the, the expanse of water, 
on either side of the banks of the Nile. But when the waters receded, vegetation would emerge and little hills and life and order would emerge out of that chaos. So they extrapolated from this that the God was at work in this process, bringing order out of chaos. And his fight against chaos continued every uh, time the sun god rose into the air, coming out of the east in the morning. Um, he would generate order in his path across the sky. This was inferable from you know the daily rhythm of the sun throughout the horizon, um, uh, throughout the the sky. And as he would set in the in the west, that's when he would enter into the uh, into the underworld to fight the chaos serpent Apophis, and would slay him every day so that order could be regenerated every day. So there's something that the Egyptians saw in their immediate terrain in their context right it was a pre-existent universe it existed forever for, for them because that was what they could infer from their experience um and from this uh, experience anchored in the nile but also in the way that they viewed the sky they were able to create a mythology about order coming out of chaos for, at the first instance at the beginning of the universe when the um uh, the hill came out of the watery expanse, representing the recession of the Nile and the emergence of life. And later on, with the sun's daily rhythms that we need for our nourishment and our, our daily sustenance, um, generating that order on a daily basis forever and ever and ever. And it's precisely this sort of cosmogony represented in their various mythological texts that they tried to um, recapitulate within their temples. So their temples, some of them in places like Heliopolis, would contain a Ben-Ben stone with the god Ra on top of it, and um, you know frescoes of the vegetation that would uh, cover either side of the Nile and so on and so forth. Um, later on with Greece, things are a little bit different. We, we, we're sticking to the Mediterranean here and the Near East, uh, and I did that uh, for very logical reasons. The first cities in history emerge in Mesopotamia, what's modern-day Syria, right, on the banks of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. And um, then you have the emergence of... Oh, sorry? Right. Uh, Iraq. Yes. And then you have the emergence of, let's say, temple cities throughout Egypt as well. And there is cross-pollinization in relation to the cultures, which also influence Greece, Rome. And then within that milieu... In the Near East and Eastern Mediterranean, you have eventually Constantinople, the Christian capital as well. So, um, if we were look, if we were to look at each culture individually, which is uh, what you've asked me to do from chapter to chapter, I've addressed some of the method methodological uh, reasons uh, in relation to positivism and how I think a history of mentalities approach informed by the studies in uh, religion. Uh, concepts that I mentioned is useful, but there's another reason, before I jump into uh, the other civilizations, there's another reason why this approach is not undertaken today in relation to the built environment and cities in particular. It's because contemporary cities are fundamentally not the result of a religious worldview. Ancient cities were. The emergence of civilization is concomitant uh, or is marked uh, by the emergence of um, religious consciousness. And this is something that can be demonstrated even before the building of the first cities in Mesopotamia 7,000 years ago in the 5th millennium BC. You can see it 
in, for example, Neolithic sites in Asia Minor, Eastern Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey, like Gebekli Tepe, where hunter-gatherers, before the, the agrarian revolution that took place around the 5th millennium BC, so before they settled in a particular spot and had the tools and the technology to be able to irrigate their crops and form a community and later a town around a specific spot, which gave them the stability to then, you know, um, to generate artisans and to reflect upon the emergence of order out of chaos and so on and so forth. Even hunter-gatherer societies 5,000 years before that, so 12,000 years ago, they're on the move. But with Gebekli Tepe, which is a series of monolithic structures that have been, uh, that are circular in form and covered with anthropomorphic and zoomorphic images out in, um, in eastern Turkey, uh, you have them building these things. Why? They're temples. They're the earliest temples that we know of. Later on, the first cities all have a temple in their center. All of them. In fact, Jan Asman, in his um, very famous book, The Search for God in Ancient Egypt, said, there is no characteristic Egyptian city without a temple. The same can be said later on for Greece and Rome. Yeah, and also you could look at uh, South America, right? The civilizations of South America, the Incas, the Mayas, all of those. Uh, the the overlapping uh, between, let's say, the urban and the sacred, uh, right? They're, you know, it's you, you cannot divorce the two, right? Uh, as, as separate, right? Almost... Uh, the sacred and the profane, uh, they're, you know, hard to take take apart, right, uh, in, in all of these uh, examples. I agree with you. It's almost as though the sacred is an impetus pushing people to these great feats of construction because they are, quite frankly, very impressive, even though they are predicated on very different principles that we have today. We live in democratic societies, people have a degree of freedom, you know, uh, the Egyptian pyramids, which, you know, according to still quite uh, sound theories, uh, funerary monuments for um, the pharaohs uh, in the second millennium BC, um, were nevertheless built by slave labor. So obviously, uh, you can't impose modern sensibilities when trying to understand uh, how these things were built uh, 4,000 years ago. It was a very different world. But still, it was a world that was saturated with uh, uh, religious sensibilities, the belief that the sacred had to be reached towards, it had to be participated in, in order for the whole civilization, not just the people at the top, the pharaoh, the aristocracy, let's say, and, you know, leading downwards, for the whole civilization to have meaning, order, and purpose. Um, in spite of the deficiencies inherent in this approach, because the city builders from ancient Mesopotamia through Egypt and then going into Greece and Rome, things are a bit different, especially in Greece, because of their suspicion towards the gods, which um, the polytheistic uh, uh, worship, which begins in about the 8th century BC. It's reflected in the Iliad, but later on it becomes more emphatic, and that's why you're able to get democracy and the rise of the polis or the city-state and everything else where, you know, uh, it's the um, elected citizens that govern the city and not necessarily a king, But even though the king had an important religious role. But before then, when it was utterly theocratic uh, 
and totalitarian in a sense in Mesopotamia and uh, in Egypt, you had the sense in which the ruler was either an embodiment of the demiurge, the creator god like Ra um, in the Egyptian context, um, or was a son of that god, and they were worshipped as such, which is of course very problematic. And things change with the emergence of Christianity because uh, the ruler can no longer be worshipped as a god, even though during the reign of Constantine, the first Christian emperor in the fourth century, he tolerated his cult in some places. Nevertheless, he never emphatically demanded of the church that it worship him. And we've seen this in the previous centuries, up until the embracement of Christianity by the Roman imperial court with Constantine onwards, that it was precisely because the Christians and the church refused to worship the emperor, uh, the emperor as a god, a ruler cult that can be traced all the way back to the emergence of the first cities with Mesopotamia and everything else, precisely because they refused to worship the emperor as a god, that they were martyred and put to death. So something is different already. I'm hinting at the differences already, right? But um, in the Near Eastern uh, cities, in Egypt and Mesopotamia, it is um, uh, the cities are a manifestation of the worldview of the inhabitants, which is marked by the sacred. They build temples that recapitulate their vision of the cosmos, which is created by a demiurge, a god. So it, once again, they ensconce themselves within the sacred. This is an imago mundi, an image of the world, because it contains all of those features which are described in the cosmogonic texts of these respective civilizations. Um, and the main agent of generating order out of chaos in these in this architectonic space, in the temples which constituted the focus of cities, was the ruler. Was the ruler. In Greece and Israel, this changes because um, the first king of uh, ancient Israel, we know David, is not claiming divine prerogatives, but he begins the process of planning out the temple within which Yahweh, who Christians interpret as God the Father, will dwell. Um, this is uh, executed by his son Solomon. He is an agent of God on earth, but he's not divine. He's not to be worshipped as divine. And this accommodates the sort of messianic trajectory which would later be applied to Christ later on, who is son of man in an eschatological sense. He has divine origins. He is the master of the whole world, yet at the same time has the title son of David. All these things are transferred to Christ and reinterpreted by him. So you can see how all of these cultures and civilizations are connected, and I don't want to jump to Christianity just yet, because when we do, there are a lot of things to say. Um, if I can linger a little bit longer on Greece, with your permission. So what we have then uh, happening in, in ancient Greece, of course, the Greeks would often um, go to Egypt uh, as a tourist destination. We read about that in Herodotus's histories and so on and so forth. But uh, in Greece, around the first millennium BC, between the first millennium and the eighth century BC, uh, a dark age is experienced on the mainland, um, and the confidence in kingship is lost, which allows for the emergence for a very different kind of polity. But still, religion is very important. So you have cities like uh, Troy. Troy is built by the son of Troas, Ilus. That's why the Iliad is called the Iliad, because another name for Troy was 
um, Ilias, or uh, that's the name in uh, Greek. Um, and this city, even though it's not a Greek city, it influences Greek culture, um, it is founded um, according to very same principles. When Ilus founded Troy, he discovered the Palladium, the image of Athena fallen to earth. So it's, a, it's an image that's come out of Olympus, which is intersecting heaven, right, the top of Mount Olympus, and has fallen to earth. And because it has divine origins, it's a cosmicizing or ordering object around which Ilus could build his city with a temple for Athena within it. In Delphi, you have something similar. Delphi is, of course, very famous. This is in the Greek mainland, of course. Um, uh, Troy was closer to Byzantium, Constantinople in Asia Minor. Um, Delphi is in, middle, uh, of the, in the middle of the Greek mainland. And um, Delphi is a spot where Apollo journeyed upon dolphins, which is why it's called Delphi or uh, Delphus in Greek. It's given the plural. Uh, which is an honorific kind of way of referring to the city. And Apollo slayed an agent of chaos. Again, agents of chaos are usually represented as serpents or snakes, very much like we see in uh, Genesis or the Christian interpretation of Genesis with the snake being identified with the devil. Here it's Typhon, um, a, a serpent entity. Apollo slays this entity before he can build a temple or he can commission people, uh, men to build a temple in his honor on that spot. And it's within that temple that the Pythoness, again, associated with the serpent, um, the prophetess of Apollo was able to deliver messages from the God, his oracle. Now, uh, his oracles. Now, there are all sorts of speculation as to what the pitoness was. What, what was she smoking? <laughs> what fumes were emerging from the cracks in the ground in order for her to deliver these um, these messages? Nevertheless, for ancient Greek kings, rulers, and statesmen, and for Roman emperors as well, Delphi was an axis mundi. It was an axis mundi because it was considered at the center of the world, that's where the omphalos, this yis, the navel of the world, was placed, a stone-like, concave, stone-like egg uh, uh, structure. Um, and the omphalos of Delphi, when Rome uh, was at its height um, in the first century as an empire, uh, was transferred, in a sense, to the city of Rome within its forum, in the center of the city of Rome, where you had the umbilicus urbis Romae, the umbilical of the center of Rome, which again had an egg-like structure. Now, this is the new center of the world, is what the Romans were saying. And in the city of Rome, within the Roman Forum, which was the symbolic center of the city, where uh, the main platform for speaking, the rostra, uh, which was like a, like a, this, a, a vertical platform, was placed right next to the omphalos. Underneath um, the rostra and the omphalos was considered to be the entrance to the mundus, the un Mundus means world, of course, but according to Varro and later Macrobius, the Mundus was associated with the underworld. So again, you have the intersection of Earth and the underworld in Rome at a place which was considered an axis mundi, namely the umbilicus urbis Romae. And so these are all common features, Delphi, Rome, and there are many more. These are all taken up by the Byzantines later on in Constantinople. So in Constantinople, jumping forward a few centuries, um, when Constantine founds the city, 
um, on the shores of the Bosphorus. It's surrounded by three bodies of water, the Sea of Marmara to the south, the Golden Horn to the north, and the Bosphorus to its east. He throws up landward walls on its western side. That's what made it the most defensible city in the world. For over a thousand years, those walls were penetrated only once, really, with the invention of the cannon, because the Latin crusaders who took the city in 1204 managed to get over the walls. They didn't breach them. So it was only breached in 1453 when the city fell to the Ottomans. Nevertheless, um, those were the Theodosian walls, mind you, built by the Emperor Theodosius a couple hundred years after Constantine. Um, nevertheless, in the center of the city, he had his uh, forum, which was circular in shape, Constantine's forum. According to Philostorgius, the 5th century Roman Byzantine historian, construction of the city began from the vantage point of his forum, where Constantine erected a porphyry column, again, the column intersects heaven and earth at the center, upon which was a statue of Constantine in the visage of the god Apollo. That's linking his forum to Delphi, okay? Um, Constantine as the sun god. At the base of his column, according to um, the Chronicon Pascale uh, from the 7th century and later the Parastasis Chronicae, the brief historical notes, and the Patria, these are all medieval guidebooks to the city of Constantinople, he places relics, Christian relics. So it's a very syncretistic image. He also places crosses next to this axis mundi. So he's accommodating both the Christians and the pagans in the city. To what extent can Constantine be considered still a pagan? I don't think so. I think he converted to Christianity because of what he did in Rome. Um, in the decades beforehand, he encircled the city of Rome with churches, like a new Christian boundary for the city of Rome. Anyway, after work on the forum, the Milion is constructed. Now, the Milion is at the easternmost edge of Constantinople, um, following the trajectory of the Messiodos, the main street. And on that million, it was a tetrapylon structure with statues of Constantine on one side and his mother, Helen, and the cross in the middle. That's where the Byzantine icon of Constantine and Helen comes from. So there's a cross at the top, Constantine on one side, Helen on the other, and within the tetrapylon are measurements to every single main city in the Roman Empire. But he has taken this imagery from Rome itself because the Emperor Augustus, 400 years earlier, at the rostra, which I mentioned earlier, uh, within uh, the forum of the city of Rome, the, the Roman forum, he erected a golden millstone, which was a it was called the Miliarium Oreum, uh, sort of a vertical uh, pylon that had inscribed on it the names and the distances of every city in the empire. So this imagery of Rome as marking out the distances to every city in the empire, um, it's there in Rome as an axis mundi. It's now being transferred to Constantinople as a new Christian axis mundi because there's the cross atop the million, he names it the million after the miliarium oreo, Augustus miliarium oreo, and he marks every single uh, city, the distance every single city in the empire. He also moves the palladion um, from, well, who knows where he moved it from, he might have constructed a new one, um, from Delphi, uh, purportedly, or from Rome, because the Romans claimed to have taken the palladion and to have stored it 
near the Temple of the Vestal Virgins, another Axis Mundi, Andimago Mundi, because it was circular and it had the hearth within it, the smoke of which would um, intersect uh, heaven and earth. Um, the Palladion was also apparently in Constantine's Forum, right next to the Porphyry Column that had the statue of him on top as the god Apollo. So all these uh, symbolic items that are used by cities to demonstrate that they are at the center of the world understood as heaven and earth are found within Constantinople eventually. Um, so you can account for one civilization to the next in this broad historical sense just by tracing the use of monuments and the way that the documents and the primary sources describe these monuments. Uh, wow, thank you for this, you know, really <laughs> great detour and uh, and uh, summary of, of these, uh, you know, incredible cultures, right? But also helping us to see the, uh, to see the symbolic continuities and discontinuities. Um, another trajectory that I noticed uh, and uh, you you trace is the trajectory or uh, the political so the political trajectory but then that political trajectory of the kingship somehow yields to uh, the christological uh, uh, you know uh, uh, element uh, dimension and 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 um, and you, while you do the trace this, you you use the word ecosystemic, quite a you know a, a term that is quite uh, rich in in meaning. And uh, as we move to this uh, uh, second part of the discussion, uh, in a way which is mostly about the role of Christ, um, and in in all of this, I'm going to ask you to read the, the two passages that uh, uh, one is on page 127 and the other one is uh, on page 235, right? Um, so so please, uh, 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 Mario, can you read the passage on 127 and then we'll do the second and and talk about uh, both of these. Okay, Th thank you, Adrian. I will do. Um, so the first passage from page 127. Uh, in the chapter on Christianity, because so far we've accounted for the similarities from the earliest uh, cities through to the Christian capital of Constantinople. Now we'll look at some of the differences. So they're all anchored in Christ. Um, a brief definition, perhaps, of ecosystemic agency. I took this concept from Ioan Piculianu's uh, work on Gnosticism. Um, he was a very famous disciple uh, of uh, Mircea whose life was uh, tragically cut short. Um, and he uh, applied the term ecosystemic um, minds, let's say, uh, to the demiurges in, in Gnostic thought. Ecos um, mm. means house, system is an ordered whole. These were the agents, semi-divine or divine agents, that ordered the, the house of the cosmos. Um, this term can be applied to all of the kings that I just mentioned, the pagan and even later Christian kings to a lesser degree, insofar as they shape their cities according to the um, vision of the cosmos that the inhabitants of the city believed in. So they are world shapers in a sense. Ecosystemic agency and world shaper mean the same thing uh, in my book. Uh, that brief definition acts as a prelude to this uh, quote on page 127. 
Christ's ecosystemic status, read their world-shaping status, is both cosmic and personal, thereby contrasting with Near Eastern conceptions of demiurges in two ways. The first is that these demiurges were unilaterally posterior to the creation. In other words, the world, albeit in a shapeless form, existed before they were born or emerged from chaos. And we have seen that this was not the case for Christ, the eternal firstborn of God the Father. And the second, that these demiurges were not considered like Christ as incorporating believers into themselves in a manner that preserved the distinct identities of both, but rather gave them access to the fecundity of the cosmogony illo tempore. Okay, so let's try and break that apart. Um, what happens uh, in relation to Israel and kingship in Israel is first and foremost very important in relation to the titles given to Jewish kings as servants of the one God. So in many of the cultures that we just addressed, they believed in many gods, although one of these many gods is usually responsible for shaping the world um, from uh, chaos into order, uh, the pre-existing material of the cosmos from chaos into order. Um, uh, Christians, of course, will later articulate the belief that the world is created by God out of nothing, ex nihilo, and that's important because it has some antecedents in Judaism, um, although they're not immediately clear in Genesis, but certainly it can be read that way. Um, uh, the Davidic uh, Messiah is the one who's been anointed. Okay, so Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Masha, which means um, anointing with oil, usually. That was a sign of kingship. And the Mashiach is the anointed one, uh, a sign of God's favor. Usually the anointing takes place at the hands of one of God's prophets, like Nathan, for instance, anointing the king. Um, and in uh, the kind of uh, Hebrew consciousness, the paradigmatic king was David. That was... Uh, the king who united the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, he was the one who established the capital of Jerusalem and laid out the plans for the construction of the temple that took place during the reign of his son, Solomon. In times of distress and turmoil, especially after the eradication of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel by the Assyrians in the 8th century BC, and later on with the captivity of the Israelites, the Judeans, um, to the Babylonians in the 6th century BC, um, the people of Israel would yearn for a son of David, a descendant of David, um, to come and liberate them from their oppressors and restore the kingdom of Israel to this closeness to God that it had under David. Interwoven in the midst of that, are the prophecies that we read about in the book of Isaiah concerning the man of sorrows and also the Old Testament uh, book of Daniel, which prophesy the son of man in contrast to a son of David. The son of man is the one to whom the ancient of days, interpreted later on by Christians to be God the Father, gives dominion over not just one particular nation, but all nations and all peoples. Okay. And his kingdom will have no end. 
when Jesus as the Messiah, and uh, Messiah is uh, in Greek, Christos, which is where we get Christ from. It's his title, right? Jesus as the Messiah comes, he repeatedly refers to himself as the Son of Man, having authority not over just one particular nation or peoples, but over the whole world given to him by God the Father. That's already one way in which Jesus is different from the other very particular um, rulers and kings that uh, identified themselves with the demiurges or gods belonging to their respective civilizations. It's one way that he's already very different. Uh, Christ shows some ambivalence in relation to the Son of David uh, title because it's associated with a political upheaval. And obviously, he's, his whole, um, let's say, uh, ministry is in stark contrast to that, you know, uh, as the Son of God. Uh, the paradox of Christ is that he is the transcendent Son of God who canonically pours himself out for us and for our salvation by becoming not just a human being, but being born in a major, you know, in the most, uh, let's say, filthy of circumstances by um, uh, experiencing human life as one of the people who were dejected and scorned. He was a carpenter by trade. He associated with the lonely. He associated with outcasts. Um, and he dies an ignominious death on the cross through which he conquers death with his resurrection. But I'm jumping the gun a little bit because what we want to look at is how Christ is identified with God and yet distinct from God. I mean, he himself says in the gospel according to St. John that I and the Father are one and to see me is to have seen the Father. So he's identifying himself with God. God is obviously creator. In the same gospel according to St. John, he is described as logos, the word of God. The Logos, according to ancient Greek philosophical thinking, was the agent of creation, like a demiurge, but in an impersonal sense, um, who that acts as the um, force of order, meaning, and purpose in the cosmos. At least this was the case for the Stoics, right? Like the mind, or you see it in Philo of Alexandria, right? In Middle Stoicism, uh, Middle Platonism, right? Yes, something right. like that, yeah. That's the executor right. of the plan. That's right. That's exactly right. God's plan is executed through his logos. That's what we see in Philo as well. That's the way Philo interpreted the word of God and also the Sophia, the wisdom of God, um, who are conflated in relation to Christ because Paul calls Christ God's wisdom as well. Okay. Um, in the beginning was the word of the logos and the word was with God and the word was God. That's what we see in the translation of of, of the first uh, verses of John's gospel. All things came into being through him, and there is not one thing that exists that did not come into being through him. So he, the one who is contemplated as having died on the cross and having risen on the third day, right, in human flesh, is identified with, uh, as having a relationship before the creation with the Father, because he creates all things um, all things come into being through him by the Father, let's say. So there is an intimation already of Christ's pre-existence as Logos. In other words, Christ, unlike the other 
uh, demiurges that the various kings identified themselves with. Um, these demiurges exist in a way that's posterior to the material world. The world already exists forever and ever in a shapeless way. And then these demiurges come onto the scene almost spontaneously and then give order and meaning to the world. But they are limited by the world in that sense. They're reacting to the chaos that's inherent in an ever-existing, uh, inchoate, material or created order. And there is a disconnect between the demiurge and the, the let's say, creator or the, the God that is distant, right? So there is a breakdown in mediation there um, in, in those other narratives. Yeah, well, it, it depends on which narrative. I mean, in, in Mesopotamia and in Egypt, there isn't really a God higher than the demiurge, right? But it might be a little bit different if you look at the Oriental religions like uh, Hinduism and Brahma and all these sorts of things. But definitely from a philosophical point of view, as it's being applied to Jesus, you get the sense that he's unlike any of these other gods because he exists before the creation of the world as Logos with the Father and creates, uh, acts as the, the, the agent of creation through which the Father creates the world. Later patristic contributions to this will be that the Father creates the world through the Son and in the Spirit, right? But nevertheless, and they add to this, of course, that this is done out of nothing, because uh, if God's creative act is completely and totally free and loving, then he cannot be necessitated into creating, right? So there is nothing compelling the Son and Word of God, which is Jesus, whom we see and experience as Jesus, um, the Son of God, there's nothing compelling him to create. He creates freely with the Father and later the church will say with the Spirit as well. So he is anterior to creation before it, implying his eternity with the Father, right? That's already intimated in John's Gospel, but made clearer um, through subsequent reflections on John's Gospel by the apologists, but especially Athanasius of Alexandria. Okay, in, on the incarnation and everything else. Um, it's taken up by the Cappadocians too. So he's not posterior to the uh, creation, he's anterior, he's before it. Well, paradoxically becoming one of us, being born of a virgin and undertaking a human life with the exception of sin, whilst maintaining his divine origins, remaining fully God, right? And that's the paradox of Christ. The other main difference is that Demiurges, um, insofar as they were meditated upon and believed in by these ancient civilizations, could be identified with by many subsequent kings and rulers. So this particular pharaoh is Ra, the next pharaoh is Ra. Augustus was simultaneously identified as Zeus and with the son of Zeus and also by the Egyptians with Ra and, and various other gods, right? But with the Son and Word of God who assumes humanity with the exception of sin as Christ Jesus, there is a permanent identification of the agent of creation with human flesh once and for all. The Son and Word of God does not after Christ, as in the human flesh that he took to himself as Jesus. I don't want to say in Jesus because that implies adoptionism as Jesus, right, 
cannot later detach itself from the flesh that it permanently assumed as Christ and inhabit another human being. No. This permanent identification of the divine creator of the world, namely the Son of God the Father, who the church would later articulate as homoousios topatria, of one essence with the Father, in other words, sharing the same inner life as the Father and one with the Father from pre-eternity and forever and ever. So he's divine in the way the Father is divine and eternal in the way that the Father is eternal. He's fully God, like the Son and the Logos. Becomes one of us once and for all while remaining full of, fully God. And that's how he's experienced throughout his life on earth, his ministry, that is death and resurrection, ascension into heaven, and even now within the church. Mm. So this, this is mm. very unique. It's very different. Another way in which Christ is different to the Demiurges is that even though Augustus and the various emperors could identify themselves with the Demiurge and their successors could do that as well, right? The life of the Creator God was inaccessible to uh, uh, schmucks like me, right? Mm -hmm. But what we have in the testimony of the church, especially in the reflections of St. Paul and, you know, the uh, the main, let's say, ritual of the church after baptism, which is participation in the Eucharist, in the body and blood of Christ, is that this Creator God has come so near to us, has experienced human life to its utmost end. To, in, in other words, dying on the cross with the exception of sin. Right? He suffered like us. He's even been tempted like us. He doesn't sin. Um, that we can now participate in his victory over death with his resurrection by eating his flesh and blood when we mm. come together at mass and at liturgy now the agape feast as it was called in the early church now this all has to be connected because when christ takes the passover meal at the last supper the mystical supper and he says this is my body this is my blood he is fulfilling the typological, let's say, trajectory that we see already in the book of Exodus, where God asks the enslaved Israelites through Moses to put lamb's blood on their doors in order to protect them from the angel of death who passes over their houses. Okay, that's what the Passover means in one sense. The other passing over in the initial sense is when the Israelites are freed from slavery and captivity and darkness and death in Egypt and are taken to the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land of life through the wilderness by Moses and later Joshua, which is Jesus actually, uh, Moses' disciple, enters into the promised land. All of this is fulfilled uh, in the life of Christ from the mystical supper to his resurrection on the third day via the crucifixion because what Christ has done is he's saying that the bread and the wine the bread which was eaten to commemorate the Israelites quickly making their bread. It did not become leavened in order for them to be able to flee Egypt, right? Um, and the wine are his body and blood that will be shed during the crucifixion. Again, think of the lamb's blood on the doors and the angel of death passing over them. So he will die on the cross, but through his blood, right, death will pass over him entirely and he will rise from the dead as the the first one to have entered the promised land, which, you know, is a fulfillment of Joshua entering into Canaan, 
Okay, so whenever we partake of the Eucharist, and this has been the case from the begin beginnings of the church, we participate in the death of the Creator God and His victory over death with His resurrection. And that victory over death, that inauguration of immortality, is transmitted to people like you and me, mm. who don't deserve mm. it, let alone the King. You know, So Christianity radically democratizes participation in divine life, actually. Mm -hmm. And these mm -hmm. things are very different. Later emperors and kings will borrow images and motifs from um, the various cultures, the way that I delineated earlier in relation to Constantine. Yeah, okay, in order mm -hmm. to show that Constantinople has surpassed mm -hmm. Rome and Delphi and everything else, we'll take the Palladion, we'll take the Miliarium Oreum, in the Hippodrome we'll put Romulus and Remus um, feed uh, being fed by the wolf mother, and all these sorts of things. But Constantine is going to have this problem. He cannot, at the Council of Nicaea, say that I am God. Mm -hmm. Christ is mm -hmm. God. And and you know, scholars they they spit they spill blood over trying to figure out if Constantine was a pagan or not. He allowed in various places pagans to worship him. The ruler cult which was so bound up with the founding of, of cities, could not disappear in a day. It, it took centuries. Nevertheless, mm -hmm. something dramatically changes with the advent of Christendom. The advent mm -hmm. of Christendom, and um, with Constantinople, later Rome, Aachen, Paris, all these other Christian cities, the ruler and the king becomes a God-appointed sovereign, a, a little bit similar to what we see in ancient Israel, but he cannot be identified with the creator God. Because his rival is Christ, the God who became one of us, has been seen, mm -hmm. has been experienced, and who is partaken of at every liturgy. Mm -hmm. Our rival uh, And another point I was going to, uh, uh, another dimension to this uh, is that uh, the the way Christ, the ecosystem, as an ecosystemic agent, to use your, your uh, uh, expression uh, um, changes is that the 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 cosmic becomes the personal, right? And you make this. I'm just gonna briefly read this on one thirty five. Sure. In contrast to demiurges in the other ancient cultures assessed above Christ, we have seen in uh, is an axis mundi, but uh, important is a personal ecosystemic agent insofar as he reshapes not only the cosmic region regions that he both intersect and transcends, but also the human beings that he has integrated into himself. Um, thus, this process begins in the here and now, but will not be consummated until the eschaton is especially manifest in the book of Revelation, which uses in relation to Christ some of the most profound axis mundi and ecosystemic imagery in the whole of the New Testament. Um, ecosystemic imagery that stands in sharp contrast to the Roman Empire, particular towards the object of its rule called the emperor and, uh, and etc. But uh, I think one dimension that you capture is this also the, in a way, the coincidence um, uh, or the intersection between the cosmic and the personal that is achieved in Christ. So it is a, it is a, it, totality, right, uh, integrated totality, um, uh, which uh, uh, brings together, let's say, the, the cosmic, the geographic, visible, um, and uh, the personal, right? And all of these 
uh, dimensions are are brought together in 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 Christ as Pantocrator, as Logos, as uh, uh, Logos as agent of creation, as place, but also the Logos that dwells within us, and and the, the incarnate Word of which we partake. So it is a really uh, uh, as they call it in physics, uh, a point of totality, right? Uh, uh, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> that that is 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 incredible. With with it's it's so potent and which is so rich. Now, 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 after this, what happens? And this is uh, maybe this is the last part of our discussion, right? We okay, Constantinople falls. Uh, uh, the history goes as it goes, and then let's say Protestantism happens, and uh, I want to. And you don't discuss this per se in the books, but but, but as I read this, I uh, you know this question keep kept bugging me is uh, how what happens to the visible right and to the symbolic in uh, in a uh, in a theology that uh, somehow become less uh, becomes less and less center carnation and can you connect that to let's say okay we're painting in very large strokes here to the way the visible for us today becomes more and more uh, uh you know poor and it has become vacuumed right it it, it, it almost has no more value right because everything has become strictly interiorized and 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 disembodied, right? Even more and more now, right? Do, do you see uh, a trajectory there, right? So I basically am asking you about the trajectory after where you end your book, if you if you can take it in that direction based on your uh, uh, studies. Yeah, again, very uh, insightful and important observations. Let me just um, preface them by saying that uh, you mentioned a few things that I want to address very briefly first. Is that okay? The application of Axis Mundi imagery to Christ, which we see in the New Testament already, where he, for example, if vines are um, in the sense uh, vertical, intersecting heaven and earth, he calls himself the true vine. Okay. When Christ um, calls himself... Um, uh, the cornerstone of the temple, he shifts temple imagery to himself, foundational temple imagery to himself. So he's shifting the emphasis away from the temple to Jerusalem to himself. When he's crucified, he's crucified on a hill, another axis mundi, but outside Jerusalem, paradoxically, on Golgotha. Then in Revelation, we get the utilization of imagery pertaining to God's kingdom, which is ruled by Christ, um, like the New Jerusalem, uh, you get the uh, uh, the sense that uh, we do not belong to the, this um, the worldly city, but our city is to come in Hebrews and so on and so forth. In the New Jerusalem that descends from heaven to earth uh, at the consummation of all things, it is God and the Lamb at the center, which is Christ, and it's from Christ that the four rivers of life flow. So all of these Axis Mundi images are uh, applied to him in his role as personal ecosystemic agent that we mentioned earlier through the church, which is his mystical body, um, facilitating the participation in his resurrectional life. We covered all of this. But then what happens afterwards 
is the continuation of the application of Imago et Axis Mundi symbolism in Christian art and architecture from the Constantinian period onwards. We mentioned some concrete examples of columns, obelisks, temples as intersecting and imaging heaven and earth. Um, but this will continue with Christian churches, which incorporate the square and the circle and the cross. Christian churches during Christendom will be deliberately built in a cruciform shape so that when you enter into the church, you enter into the cross and you participate in the Eucharist in the body and blood of the one who died on the cross and rose on the third day. With um, the square churches, of course, squares and even circles uh, intersect the four cardinal points, and so does the cross. When, when domed churches begin to emerge with Justinian, the emperor Justinian who built Hagia Sophia onwards, you have the sense of the square intersecting the four cardinal points, or if you like the cross, because you have cross in square churches as well, and the dome representing the starry firmament or the cosmos, so when the Pandocrator, which you mentioned, is depicted on the underside of domes, he is the master of the cosmos, and that's being mediated to the congregation. This is characteristic of churches in East and West throughout uh, the Middle Ages, both Western Christendom and Eastern Christendom. So Byzantium, um, churches in Rome built under various popes, uh, Germany, Aachen, all this imagery appears. Even in the Renaissance, it's there. It's just hyper-stylized. It's all there. And now you asked about Protestantism. So I had to preface it. Sorry, I couldn't just jump into Pro Protestantism. I had to preface it a little bit with all of this. Okay, there is a general, although we don't want to exaggerate it, but there's a general tendency to dismiss the visible and the externals with Protestantism in favor of the interior conscience and the personal reading of the scriptural texts. To what extent that's been influenced by the uh, Islamic emphasis on the Quran is a whole other avenue to, to analyze, but we don't have time for it here. Basically, in opposition to what they believed were Roman Catholic, uh, let's say, uh, excesses in the Middle Ages, the Protestants throughout for the, for the most part, the baby with the bath water, only accepting two sacraments in the case of Luther, you know, baptism and Eucharist. Uh, some of the reformers like Zingli and Calvin, you know, to what extent do they even believe in the real presence, what Catholics would call the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? We don't know if they did or not. Anabaptists and others, they, they wouldn't believe in that at all. Certainly they didn't um, decorate their churches in the way, in this cosmic Axis Magomundi way that we saw Orthodox and Catholics were. They, they weren't doing that. There, there is a, an argument in um, Eliade and various others uh, that you find it in Daniel A. Miller in his book Imperial Constantinople as well, that when human beings, and this happens around the time of the agrarian revolution in the 5th millennium BC, separate themselves from nature, they need to recreate the natural world within their new habitations, temples, and cities, etc. But this is a nature in those times always punctuated by the sacred, what Eliade called the hierophany. In Christendom, you can call it the theophany. Okay, This is missing in the Protestant churches. Sometimes you have a cross, 
sometimes know, you know, um, the, the earliest Christians figured out how to depict um, Christ and the saints uh, with the first wave of iconoclasm in the 700s, okay? So, you know, when the iconoclasts influenced as they were by the Islamic aversion to, towards anthropomorphic imagery, which they believed based on a very literalist reading of one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not make a graven image of anything in heaven, that um, this was helping their empire spread, the early caliphate spread. The iconoclast emperors in Byzantium began to burn icons and all, all sorts of things, and they said the only thing we can use as an image for Christ is the cross and the Eucharistic cup. But St. John of Damascus and all the other uh, great iconophiles said no, because the eternal and transcendent Son of God the Father, who in pre-existence is invisible, took on flesh whilst remaining fully God. He sanctified matter, and we can use matter authentically to depict him. And this is something that's taken up by the Catholic and Orthodox churches. We, we take it for granted. You can paint Jesus. You can even pray to a statue of Jesus or a statue of Mary or an image of Jesus or an image of Mary, as long as you know in your mind that, okay, you, real worship is ascribed to Christ or to the Trinity alone. But you can ask an image of a saint or a statue of a saint to help you. And the image participates in its archetype through the veneration, give it to it. So there's a belief that somehow, it's like when I look at a photograph of my wife. It's not my wife, but it is my wife. Well, the image of a saint is not the saint, but it is a saint, especially if you prayerfully approach it. But there's no worship happening there. Protestantism does away with all these things. There's the famous breaking of the statues of Christ and Mary and the saints that happens throughout Western Europe um, with the Protestant Reformation. Um, but human beings need to cosmicize their space. They need to represent the sacredness and nature that they're divorced from within their spaces. So to fill the vacuum, I think what happens um, is you get the re-emergence of civil religion around the time of the Enlightenment, which is, okay, we no longer have churches or uh, at the center of our cities, or if they're, de they're there, you know, when you have the uh, separation of church and state with the Enlightenment and the various revolutions in France and other places that take place, you know, they need to substitute the feast days, the processions uh, of statues of the saints that would happen in the public space and the thoroughfares, the veneration of various saints, the 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 worship of Christ with something else, and they go back to the warrior cult of antiquity that preceded Christianity, which is manifested in the cult of the dead soldier. You know, the heroes of the revolution in in uh, Soviet Russia, the heroes of the Repub republic in in France, and so on and so forth. And this conditions many modern cities to this day. Still. People needed symbolism. It's not for no reason that the rise of secretive fraternities that utilized the panoply of symbols uh, across a broad range of religions like the Freemasons and everything else emerged precisely in this period. It's because these people were mostly Protestant and um, that there was this historical aversion towards the only institution in the West at the time that maintained all of this kind of symbolic imagery, namely Catholicism. So they invented their own stuff with, uh, you know, mm. the reemergence of, uh, let's say, the obelisks and all these things that we see in Masonic cities. But both the cult of the, sol the soldier and this kind of neoclassical imagery deployed by, by Masons and others, 
that didn't have a lasting effect. And the fate of the modern city, according to Lewis Mumford and other scholars, has been totally conditioned by utilitarianism and economic factors. Mm. This is why in the center of modern cities today, what you have is the central business district. And what happens at the central business district, and I've spoken about this elsewhere in the podcast with Jonathan Cole on his um, Political Animals podcast, but I've also written an article uh, on Jonathan Pajot's um, Symbolic World website in two parts on the modern city. And I hope in a revised version of this book um, to include a coda or an appendix mm -hmm. on the modern city. Um, what you have uh, take place is with the rise of capitalism in the cities, and I'm not a Marxist, so you know there's goods to capitalism, there's also bads. The rise of capitalism and the generation of revenue capital um, is precipitated by the selling of goods for an agreed upon exchange value. Okay, but these goods have to be marketed either as services or products. How are they marketed? They're marketed with imagery. So advertisements, billboards, Coca-Cola. How is this imagery directed towards us? Well, by exacerbating our passions. Have you ever seen the Coca-Cola ads from the 80s? You can't get away with this today, you know? The Coca-Cola bottle is always held by a beautiful girl in a bikini because they're trying to hit you in your gut. Mm -hmm. This is all deliberate. So this, uh, if you go to the city, this is what you see, advertisements for perfume, you smell nice, and it's all about inflating the narcissism, in a sense, of the mm -hmm. consumer. You know, you need this. This is essential for your identity, exacerbating our passions so that we can continue to participate in the flow of revenue by buying goods and services. And this is in stark contrast, mind you, Leave the ancient cities for a minute to medieval Christian cities, which had Christ and the saints giving, you know, either the blessing of peace and exhorting us towards dispassion as opposed to exacerbating the passions or peace like this, um, get, trying to calm us down, to quiet us down so that we could, you know, uh, mm -hmm. instill a more prayerful mood, etc. Um, this is why there's so much... Um, it's uh, because of the hustle and bustle of the city space, the busyness, but all the advertisements, the constant exacerbation of our um, nervous systems. Uh, this is why there's so much depression, anxiety, and so forth in, in cities. And it's been documented by scientists. It's not something I'm making up. In an article that I published on religious uh, symbolism in Constantinople and the modern city, I've uh, referred to uh, I don't remember the names of the scholars now, of various scientists who've spoken about the detrimental effects of the modern city space on our well-being. So, you know, mm. Protestantism uh, had its own reasons for going in the trajectory that it did, if you can speak of Protestantism as a unified phenomenon. From the outset, it wasn't. But uh, nevertheless, the vacuum was filled, filled, and it was filled historically. You can see it in Chicago, um, in Sydney, in New York, in all these places with neoclassicism, war memorials, all these sorts of things. And finally, you know, commemorating the soldiers. Okay, it's important for national consciousness, mm -hmm. but it happens once a year. Beyond that, what's there to fill the city space? Well, enter the big businesses and the corporations, you know. And uh, and that's but, how... But in all of this, there is some, uh, you know, good news, so to speak, because you, I think in your book, you talk about different countries where uh, 
sacred architecture is still being practiced, right? So new uh, ch churches that are being built currently where some traces of this great uh, past and tradition are still can still be encountered, right? So, uh, which which in a way proves Eliade's point that uh, uh, the symbolism and the craving for symbol are deeply ingrained in us, right? That, uh, uh, and I would somehow counter that you that even in in cities like Chicago or Sydney, if you look carefully, so to speak, that the the sacred found to use Eliade's term camouflaged. Right and and hidden, right? You you have a very you know interesting, beautiful uh, places and spaces that somehow break the monotony, break that uh, uh, you know grayness of the postmodern or or uh, city, right? Modern postmodern city. Well, one hundred percent. I was exaggerating just to contrast it to the medieval. Times, but definitely in Sydney, we've got St. Mary's Cathedral, which dominates uh, the part of the city that it's in next to Hyde Park, and um, which is a Roman Catholic cathedral. And you have churches in uh, everywhere, synagogues, mosques, all the religions have their symbolic art and architecture, but there is no uh, mystagogia. A leading mm -hmm. the mystery of what that. If you happen to find it, good, but you're on your own and you have to navigate through all the symbols that tempt you, just one more beer, you know, one more product, one more. Mm -hmm. This is something I noticed very starkly in Venice, which is one of the most remarkable cities in the world, obviously, uh, with San Marco's uh, Basilica mm -hmm. and, and all these wonderful churches and images. But, you know, people tend to, because of the way we've been conditioned in our contemporary society, to go to uh, the big brands, Prada and this and that and all mm -hmm. the shops. Well, there's a tension. That tension is there, whether we like it or not. You know? And still, as since you mentioned, you know, Venice and many other places in Italy, you notice all these hordes of tourists going into these sacred spaces, yeah. taking all the pictures, but in a almost meaningless way, right? So you, you don't know what it means for them, right? But... Uh, Nevertheless, it speaks to the power of those images, right? Somehow, back to Balthus, von Balthasar's point that, you know, this the, the four of the beautiful uh, and of the good is really convincing, right? Beyond the words, right? So, uh, beyond the discursive, there is something that attracts someone and i think you you make this very much clear and you demonstrated in your book the power of symbols the power of this sacred geography that then merges with a political geography and how it all culminates in in byzantium anyways yeah i think we've uh, <laughs> talked quite a bit and then this was very uh, rich and enriching um thank you uh, mario for your your time and uh, and what is the next project now? You mentioned you are you are writing something, almost like a sequel to the book, or yes, th thank you for your time as well, uh, Adrian, and for your your encouraging words, and uh, and I appreciate uh, everything that uh, that you've said. Um, my next book uh, is currently in the works with Bloomsbury Publishing on uh, Constantinople, so it's like the eighth chapter of this book. 
of of uh, from the ancient Near East to Christian Byzantium expanded to a whole book. So I go through the various uh, epochs in uh, Byzantine mm -hmm. history for a thousand years and look at the symbolism of extant monuments in Constantine's time during the reign of Theodosius Justinian and then the middle and later Byzantine periods with a few, uh, let's say, excursions into, of course, Venice and Ravenna. Uh, oh. So uh, hopefully that'll be out. I've got to make some revisions to the text and God willing, it'll be out um, sooner rather than, than later. Yeah, Remnants mm -hmm. of New Rome is the title. Remnants of New Rome. Wow, looking forward to it. <laughs> well, we'll discuss that too, uh, God willing, right? Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you.